You're listening to ReachMD XM 233, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, your host, and with me today is Dr. Chris Beyer. Dr. Beyer is Professor of Epidemiology at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. He's also the director of the Johns Hopkins University Fogarty Aid Program, Senior Scientific Liaison for the United States Government-Supported HIV Vaccine Network, and Medical Advisor to the Dalai Lama. Thank you, Dr. Beyer, for joining us today. Today we're going to be discussing the AIDS epidemic in Asia. Dr. Beyer, what have you observed as general trends in the spread of AIDS in Asia? There are several important trends right now. Of course, Asia is an enormous region, and it is enormously diverse. So we have some very developed and uh, highly medically sophisticated countries like Japan and South Korea that have really been largely spared from HIV. And then, of course, we have a number of sort of newly independent emerging Central Asian states, mostly part of the former Soviet Union, places like uh, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, which are just now, unfortunately, really beginning to go through the first explosive phase of HIV. Most of those countries have IDU-driven epidemics, uh, and they really are in the, in the early stages uh, of their public health responses. In Southeast Asia, which has been after Sub-Saharan Africa for many years, the most affected region uh, in Asia, the three high prevalence countries have been Thailand, uh, Burma, Myanmar, and Cambodia. And all three of them appear at this point to have epidemics that at least their predominant mode of spread, heterosexual spread, the heterosexual epidemics in those countries do seem to be uh, somewhat in decline. That is a very heartening news. And certainly in the case of Thailand and Cambodia, these were countries that had a vigorous public health response to the heterosexual epidemic. And in both countries, that was predominantly driven by high rates of male use of sex workers, of commercial sex services. So it's quite a diverse picture. And then I think it's fair to say that there has been a, a lot of heat and not so much light on the epidemics in the two enormous countries in this region, China and India, which, of course, together account for something like two-fifths of humanity, and where uh, the epidemics have largely been concentrated in risk populations and, and where the sort of general population surveillance has been very difficult and very spotty, uh, and where I think it's fair to say there's quite a lot of controversy about what directions those epidemics are really going in. Nevertheless, this is the kind of thing that keeps epidemiologists awake at night because the populations are so large, and in the case of India, they are so young, uh, and the potential for you know, really enormous numbers of people to be infected in, in the future uh, certainly is there. Do you think there might actually be underreporting in some of these countries? Well, there's undoubtedly underreporting for a number of reasons. One certainly is that in some settings, Burma is a good example, we know that the surveillance system is, simply doesn't function at a level that would generate confidence for any of us. Secondly, of course, you know, HIV remains a highly stigmatized disease, and in many uh, settings in Asia, much more stigmatized than it is, for example, in the U.S. So people don't necessarily want an HIV test, and they certainly don't want an AIDS 
diagnosis on uh, on a family death certificate. So AIDS uh, mortality is very underreported. And just to give you a feel for how extreme this can be, we did an evaluation in 2000 uh, of the reporting data from Burma. At that time, in that year, the UN AIDS estimate was that perhaps 45,000 people a year were dying of AIDS in that country. And the official death certificate system reported uh, a little over 800, I think it was about 804, 805 AIDS deaths. So just absolutely not capturing the scale of the epidemic. We know that's happening, but the numbers that I've been referring to when I sort of talk about these trends are not actual reported either HIV infections or AIDS cases or deaths, but really rather sort of the the best estimates that we have. The current controversy has been uh, around the the ways in which India in particular um, has been sampling uh, and reporting HIV infections. And there may have been an oversampling of urban areas and of at-risk populations. And so India and UNAIDS jointly have both just downsized the total number of infections in India from over 5 million to more sort of 2.7 million. Um, so that's a big change if it's real, but I think all of these numbers have to be taken with a pretty large grain of salt. We often associate a certain population with people who get AIDS, drug users, sex workers, and migrants who use high-risk practices. Is there any difference in this in Asia? Well, with drug users, I would say there are a number of Asian settings where injection drug use is the predominant mode. So, no, it isn't really very different, and the drivers are very similar. Needle sharing, lack of access to uh, clean injection equipment, and the behavioral risks that are associated with substance use. And that certainly, for example, is the case in Vietnam, Indonesia, Malaysia, which all have the majority of their infections uh, due to injection drug use. Ditto Central Asia. These are very concentrated epidemics, and all of them have more than 70% of cumulative infections reported in injectors. That also is the case in Iran, which has quite a severe injection drug use problem. It has a huge amount of heroin because of its long land border with the heroin production zones in Afghanistan, which are now, of course, the world's largest producer of illicit opiates is Afghanistan. And Iran has an overwhelmingly injection drug use driven epidemic. So that isn't really different. I think what's different, sadly, is that first of all, there's been very little drug treatment and drug treatment access, of course, not so great in the United States, but in Western Europe, Australia, and some other places that have had IDU spread, basically there is pretty much access to treatment on demand as needed in in many developed country settings. That you don't see in Asia. There's very little drug treatment. And often what there is is not evidence-based. So it tends to be cold turkey detox, often with a punitive uh, and incarceration element, sort of force detox, and what you see where anybody's actually studied it is repeated failures of this approach. Many countries still oppose the use of substitution therapy, so that is a real lack in Asia. Happily, in 2005, the World Health Organization, after enormous pressure from advocates around this issue, finally added methadone and buprenorphine to the essential drugs list. 
Now, that is a very important list for developing countries because it guides ministries of health in the drugs that they need to have available in country to meet sort of WHO standards of compliance. So you can imagine worldwide that methadone was not considered an essential drug until 2005. That certainly has contributed to how bad these IDU epidemics are in Asia. With sex workers, again, not a dissimilar situation, of course, except that in many Asian settings, sex work is illegal, but it has been very highly stigmatized, criminalized, it's somewhat covert behavior, and it involves uh, considerably more trafficking. So, for example, the Indian sex industry, which is very large, involves substantial numbers of women and girls trafficked from Nepal, and it has more of a of a forced component. In Thailand, we deal with a lot of Burmese women trafficked into the Thai sex industry. In Cambodia, this tends to be more Khmer women and girls uh, trafficked from rural areas into the capital. But nevertheless, that has meant that this is a population with many more vulnerabilities and less ability to, to make healthy choices. And of course, what we see in first world settings uh, uh, very often is that when sex workers are empowered and they call the shots and it's their decision about condom use and they have protection from violence from clients and so forth, uh, HIV rates are really very low in sex workers and their clients. So this really has been a problem. I think another problem, you know, if I might add to your question, is also the case that uh, you know a lot of HIV infection now, the majority still of infections in the U.S. are among men who have sex with men. And that population, too, is large and covert in Asia, just beginning to begin to uh, really access health services. And uh, where we've looked, Thailand is a good example, we see that rates in men who have sex with men are substantially higher than they are in the general population, and the services provided to these men are, are much more limited. So this has been a neglected part of Asia's picture. I was thinking, in particular, monogamous Asian women. Are they more vulnerable than in other countries? Well, the principal risk, and there have been some nice, well-done studies from both from India and Thailand, made it clear that the most important risk for women in those countries is marriage. And the HIV epidemic uh, in monogamous heterosexual women is, of course, really driven by male risk. Now, in the South Asian setting in particular, so India, Nepal, Bangladesh, what you have is uh, the expectation that women are virgins at marriage, are sexually inexperienced, and also innocent you know, lack knowledge, is the socially accepted position. So they really are not in a position to negotiate condom use, to ask if their new husband has had an HIV test, to understand what an STD is, if they should acquire one, or even to inquire into male partner risks like injection drug use, sex with prostitutes, sex with other men, multiple partners, STDs, and so forth. So there's no question that there's a great deal of vulnerability there. One of the issues that we have seen, and this has certainly been the case in a number of settings, is that the very first time that HIV testing really is offered is often at the first antenatal clinic visit for women. So when women have their first pregnancy, is likely the first time that they ever uh, are approached for HIV testing. And of course, what that means often is that in the context of a couple and of the family, that the canary in the coal mine, if you will, is the pregnant woman. And that 
increases their vulnerability to other issues. It's your fault. You brought this into the marriage. You know, you're an undeserving daughter-in-law and so forth. And that has been a real challenge. Just to give you a feel for this, culturally in Thailand, I, I was based in Thailand from 92 to 97. Spent a lot of time there. When I started working there, the the Thai term for a sexually transmitted disease was a ro puying, women's diseases. And these are things that women give men, and that very quickly became the issue with HIV because again, most of the time that it was being picked up in the context of a family was in pregnancy, and that is because, of course, we have some powerful prevention tools to prevent mother-to-child transmission. So that's a big issue for Asian cultures. And of course, it's it's particularly challenging again where women uh, lack the ability to negotiate and lack power in the family. I want to thank Dr. Bayer, who has been our guest, and we've been discussing the AIDS epidemic in Asia. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, and you've been listening to the Clinicians Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.